News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There are all kinds of scams out there, right? People are always trying to take our money somehow. But then there are scams that are next level. The kind that take people for not just millions, but hundreds of millions of dollars over time. And I always think, boy, that seems like a lot of work, right? Wouldn't it have just been easier to get a job and work for that money? Apparently not. Now, Rachel Brown is an investigative reporter and documentary producer and has written about a Canadian man's huge million-dollar psychic scam. I mean, this thing was decades long, and it is just coming to a conclusion. Rachel is with us to tell us about it. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So tell me about the scam. When did this thing get started? So the scam involving this legendary French psychic named Maria Duval started in the late 80s, early 90s, I would say, with a couple of businessmen in Europe um, who were actually in business with Maria Duval. They had licensed her name and likeness. Um, but over time, it seemed to have ballooned into this operation that really perhaps didn't have much of her involvement at all. Uh, And Patrice Runner, the Canadian man who wanted the North American side of this business, started getting involved in it in around the mid-90s. Okay. And so how? Like, how did they get involved? Well, he actually met with Maria Duval, he says, um, in the south of France in her villa. And he was a, you know, sort of a rising copywriter advertiser in Montreal and had many of his own mail order businesses previously. Um, And so he says that he came to an agreement with her and started uh, advertising psychic services and products in her name in Canada, in the U.S. And then over the next 20 years or so, uh, there were millions and millions and millions of these letters that were sent to, you know, unsolicited uh, letters sent to addresses all across North America. And again, it seems like it sort of uh, ballooned uh, beyond her involvement. Um, The Department of Justice in the United States has said that she has had no involvement in the case, uh, in the operation, rather. Um, and so, yes, it was for the course of 20 years that this wow. massive mail order operation was in effect. This sounds like so much work. You know what I mean? Like when I think about these scams, I think, boy, this was like a lot of work. So what eventually brought this down? Well, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service actually just came across one of the companies that was involved in the operation, sort of by chance, they were looking into something else. And then they kind of noticed some strange financial transactions. There was money um, being rejected. um, And this is around the sort of mid 2000s. And so this one postal inspector started looking further into this company that was traced back to Montreal. And he did some more research online and found that a lot of people around the world were complaining about being scammed by this Maria Duval operation. They'd received a letter, sent in money, and either didn't get anything back or over time came to realize that it was, um, you know, just sort of a copy-paste letter scheme that wasn't personalized to them like they had thought. And so over time, the U.S. Department of Justice sort of zeroed in on Patrice Runner's companies and his operation, his employees, and over time sort of took down the business bit by bit with a civil case and then eventually with a criminal case involving his former employees in Montreal and then eventually to him 
himself. Okay. There's so much going on with this story, Rachel, which is probably why you find it so fascinating, why your piece was so fascinating too, because it evaded law enforcement for so long. And I guess I'm, I'm curious about how did he persuade so many people to send him money when he wasn't ever physically interacting with them? Well, I mean, you know, people are... I mean, it kind of speaks to the power of advertising and the power of copywriting. If someone who is, um, you know, maybe not in the best place in their life receives this letter that's very persuasively written that is promising happiness, wealth, um, and all sorts of positive things in your life for a small fee, you know, we see this all the time that people are very, um, people can be quite vulnerable to these big promises and people are searching for meaning and purpose and prosperity in their lives. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of easy to see how people can buy into literally these types of promises and these types of businesses. It happens all the time. Right. But if he's using the mail for this, then, I mean, that clearly sounds like it was breaking some law. So what, what took law enforcement so long to get on this case? Like this was going on for a long time. It was going on for a long time, and I think that there were just, um, you know, there's so many of these mail order operations that uh, are, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, that were going on. I mean, Patrice Runner himself had caught the attention of U.S. law enforcement for other mail order and advertising operations that he'd been running uh, regarding weight loss products that were found to be bogus. Um, So he kind and he was fined for those, a monetary fine. So he kind of was on the radar of law enforcement for a bit. And then, you know, it takes many years to unravel these very complicated international uh, operations. You know, the U.S. Depart- Department of Justice has jurisdiction over the U.S., but if there's, you know, uh, people that they're targeting who are abroad, it takes a long time and a lot of manpower to unravel massive schemes that have many different entities and companies So it was quite complicated for sure. Right. So that's finally kind of what's ended up in court. And there's recently been a trial and he was found guilty. So what's going to happen now? He is waiting to be sentenced for this. Um, You know, there's some there's some procedural things that happen between now and the sentencing. Um, So that's the next step. He faces uh, very serious penalties. This is taken, you know, mail order wire fraud is taken very seriously in the United States. uh, And he faces up to 20 years times the 14 convictions um, that he's been handed. So there's a lot of jail time that he's facing. And there's some monetary fines that he could be facing as well. So I love the fact that this all has to do with like him promising psychic services to people here. And was part of his defense actually that, hey, like we're talking about being a psychic here. This isn't fraud. It's kind of magic. Exactly. That's Um, crazy. It's a very interesting defense. And, you know, his lawyers unsuccessfully in the end tried to argue that there are so many industries that we all buy into that are based on deceit. And we knowingly buy into things like magic shows, the WWE psychics in general, you know, the psychic on the street corner that you see operating and offering services. And we knowingly, in many cases, buy into this with the knowledge that it's, it's deceit. um, It's may not, it may not necessarily be evidence-based and that it's a form of entertainment. And so his attorneys tried to argue that what Patrice was offering was a form of entertainment and was aligned with a lot of these other types of businesses that we know and love. Um, 
And so he, it was kind of a buyer beware situation, according to his lawyers. Okay, Obviously that's so, that, that didn't end up flying no. with the jury, but <laughs> right. But it's so interesting that they would compare it to something like WWE, where they're saying, "Listen, everybody knows psychics are fake. We're all just here for a good time." Mm-hmm. Like, yes, exactly. I, I'm not sure everybody believes that psychics are fake. Isn't that the problem? <laughs> I, I don't know. I know a lot of people who, you know, are who's to say that psychics are real and psychics psychics aren't. We don't really have evidence either way, right? That's right. But obviously, people want to believe, and that was what happened mm-hmm. in this case. So, uh, yes. wow! So this this has been going on for so long. This must have been fascinating for you to uncover. It was because there's so many twists and turns. I mean, Maria Duval herself is a psychic. Whether or not you believe in psychics. She was out there as a uh, as a psychic with a reputation for being a psychic. People believed her to be a psychic. So she herself had this decades-long career starting um, in France in the 70s. And then you kind of fast forward through her career to the 90s with people like Patrice Renner and other businessmen who really wanted to use her image and kind of capitalize on this psychic boom that was happening in the 90s, like you see with the Psychic Friends Network, with Miss Cleo. And so there's just so many avenues to explore in this story that that touch on so many interesting aspects of society and, and frankly, parts of the world. It's a global story. Um, these letters were sent to millions of people around the world. That is crazy. Rachel, thank you so much for telling us about it this morning. Thank you for having me. Take so care. So fascinating. Rachel Brown, investigative reporter and documentary producer. Her latest piece in The Walrus has to do with this um, Canadian man, a million dollar psychic scam. It's psychic fraud. And this was going on for years. It started in the 1980s. It only just finished up in a courtroom in the United States where Patrice Runner was convicted of fraud. But boy, it is a fascinating story there. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, that must mean it's time for us to talk to Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, here we are. I know we sound like broken records, but we have to give the update on BC Ferries because we're getting lots of information, uh, but things not starting out so smoothly. Yeah, well, at least we're getting the information from ferries now. They are providing regular updates, and the regular updates are candid that the troubles continue. So officially, the long weekend begins terms of ferry travel on Thursday because people get away early. They have a day off or time or accumulated overtime, or they just make a run for the ferries because uh, they know it's going to get worse as the weekend goes on. And I'm hearing uh, on your news this morning, uh, there are a couple of troubles already. So it's bumpy to begin with. Uh, we'll just take note of it uh, and say uh, it's still a work in progress, this turnaround on the ferries. I will say, though, just looking at the current conditions of that, you know, Tawasin to Swartz Bay route, I mean, there's still room on the 8 a.m. ferry. There's, yep. I mean, this morning actually looks pretty, a couple of them are full. The 10 o'clock is full, the 2 o'clock is full, but the other off-peak hour ones, there's still some room on there. So hopefully things go a little more smoothly. I hope that's true. I feel for people who have no choice because of limited travel time or work, or this was when they booked their holidays, who have to travel this weekend. Long time Victoria residents like me, and I've been here forever, it feels like. You, there's no way you, you would travel right. on BC ferries on a long weekend if you could possibly avoid it. Victoria is a lovely place. 
It's a great place to shelter, and I plan to go for walks in the capital region today, and I'm not going near the BC ferries. Lucky me, I do feel for the people who have no choice. Yes, exactly. Okay, so let's talk about some of the plans, though, because a lot of this, they've got a big capital plan, right? Yeah, the CEO on his, uh, you know, big briefing for the news media on Wednesday talked about long-term plans, and one of the things he mentioned is, Uh, Ferries has a plan to spend more than $5 billion over the next 12 years adding to the fleet. And the first uh, $2.5 billion will be spent in the next contract period starting next year. So uh, very enthusiastic about it. A lot of promise there. Looking forward to getting on with it. But checking the website of the Ferries Commissioner yesterday... Uh, I discovered what he isn't telling us, which is the Ferries Commissioner has some concerns about the Ferries Capital Plan. So the Commissioner is the regulator of the Ferry Service, Eva Haga, and she reviews the plans and she sent the Capital Plan out for review by, uh, De- by Deloitte. And Deloitte said, there's some problems with this plan. Deloitte, first of all, noted that over the last three years, BC Ferries has gone an average 12% over budget on capital projects. And the report said there's some problems uh, with their estimating, with their risk assessment, with their management of products when they projects when they get in trouble. And the commissioner agrees with that. So she says Ferries going to have to smarten up. She's told Ferries about that. And a ferry corporation gave me a statement yesterday saying, "Uh, yeah, we're aware of all that and we're dealing with it and we're going to get some outside help in managing capital projects. So, I mean, good on them doing it. It's not, however, something they were advertising when they talked to the news media on Wednesday. Right. So clearly there's quite a few caveats in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the big ones is, and I I think the commissioner, the ferry commissioner doesn't get a lot of attention, but on this one, she's done the right thing. She's got a report that says that ferries has been running 12% over budget on capital projects. And so what she said is in future, if the ferries get approval for a project from her, and then they discover later on that they're going more than 5% over budget, they have to come back to her and explain why they're over budget and get approval for the overrun. So the regulator doing her job here, BC Ferries gets a lot of money from the provincial government uh, for all kinds of things, $200 million a year. They just got a half a billion dollars to hold down fares. So I think that's a case of the regulator doing her job. I can see why BC Ferries may not want to draw a lot of attention to it. I think she's done the right thing, but that puts a question mark over the effectiveness of the $5 billion capital plan because it's now proceeding on a fairly short leash from the regulator. Very surprising news from the Prime Minister this week. We're back with Vaughn Palmer for more on that. Right, Vaughn? Yeah, not what you think was the big news of him this week. I think in terms of public policy, and especially for British Columbia with its housing troubles, the biggest news of the week from the Prime Minister was his statement in Hamilton on Monday that, quote, I'll be blunt, housing is not primarily a federal responsibility. So, His reading of the Constitution may be correct, but as the Conservatives quickly pointed out with a very effective ad, 
That's not what Justin Trudeau said when he was running for prime minister in 2015 and not what he's been saying for years, which is he was going to solve the problem of affordable housing. So he can't really wash his hands of it because, first of all, the promises, but also, Simi, I think we have to say, and the BC government has pointed this out effectively, the reason, one of the main reasons we have a housing crisis in British Columbia is the enormous amount of immigration that Ottawa has been approving. Mm-hmm. I mean, the numbers coming to BC are way above what we're actually building here. No, absolutely. There's a good piece on the Thai, on the Orca website this week from uh, Jock Finlayson, Ken Peacock, BC Business Council, pointing out, and I think the number that really jumps out is... Uh, British Columbia accepted 180,000 new residents last year, and it built 40,000 new units of housing. Now, those aren't just immigrants or people moving (coughs) from other provinces. They're temporary foreign workers, so there's a whole bunch of things going on. But um, that isn't – 40,000 units of housing is a lot of housing. We're doing – we're building a lot. We're not keeping up with – the people who are arriving here, never mind uh, all the other things that are contributing to the crisis. That is uh, a lot. That's a big difference. That's a big difference here. So but yeah, that's is. not what we heard from them yesterday. Weren't they in town yesterday to make some big yes, housing announcements? So the federal cabinet minister, uh, Sajan, who's from British Columbia, is in town yesterday saying, announcing $208 million. That's not a small amount of money for uh, purpose-built rental housing. So Ottawa is putting money into it. And and he kind of goes, you know, maybe the prime minister didn't really mean what he said. My guess is you're going to see federal ministers walking that back. But BC's big issue, which I think is the one that Ottawa needs to address, is British Columbia is not opposed to immigration. And it's certainly not opposed to people moving here from other provinces or from temporary foreign workers, or from foreign students, all of which is contributing to it. But what BC has been saying is that Ottawa ought to spend its housing money proportionally so that um, BC gets a greater share of money, particularly Vancouver region, same as Toronto region, because we're getting the majority of the immigrants. I, I think that's a fair comment. Now, whether Ottawa will actually do that I don't know. And of course, you've got, I think, the prime minister's comment, the blunt comment on Monday. Uh, He's been in power for eight years and maybe mentally he's starting to check out on some of the promises he made because he realizes that Ottawa can't solve these problems by itself. Right. Maybe this is part of the kind of refocusing as well that they're going to be doing, realizing that there's a lot of constraints right now economically for the government, too, given the pandemic and all the spending that's been going on. Uh, Well, that's true. But, you know, the federal government is also contributing mightily to inflation. And of course, it has more control over the Bank of Canada than anybody else. And interest rates are a factor. So I think you put all that together and you see what the B.C. government is up against, because, of course, David Eby is another of those politicians who promised affordable housing and even with the most generous interpretation of what's going on here in British Columbia, Simi, we're headed in the opposite direction. Uh, Yes, British Columbia is building a lot of housing, but it is also bringing in more people than it can house. And of course, 
it's behind schedule for not a lot, awful lot of people out there. So you've got problems in rental housing, problems in seniors housing, problems in the famous phrase, the missing middle. Good example here in the capital. <clears throat> Premier's new housing advisor, Lisa Helps, was mayor of Victoria when she came up with the missing middle plan here in Victoria. And David Eby endorsed it and gave her a housing job in his government because he liked it. Well, so far, the indications are, Simi, there have been no takers for that policy. There are no projects that fit the goal of the missing middle housing project here in British Columbia. And that is something that was undertaken by a left of center city council with the best of intentions. And to me, it just underscores how hard it is going to be to keep these promises to make housing more affordable. It's also it also strikes me here, Vaughn, that one of the things that David Eby said, especially when he was housing minister, was that you know you had to make municipalities say yes more often, and yeah. we don't really see that happening yet either. Uh, yeah, I remember we got the famous list that it infuriated right. the government when we called it the naughty list, but they named forty-seven municipalities in British Columbia that were going to have to do more and approve more housing. Well. Where is it? Yes, I know it takes time, but David Eby didn't give himself much time. He said, you're going to see results before the next election. It's, what, 14 months away with the most generous interpretation of the schedule. And I think what we're really seeing here is that, yes, it takes cooperation with all levels of government, also takes investors who are willing to invest in housing projects because they think there'll be a market for it. So I think this is going to be one of the big tests of the EB government, and it can't be reassuring to the premier that it sounds like the prime minister is walking away from responsibility for helping the province when all levels of government are going to have to work together to tackle the problem. And even then, it is going to be difficult to keep up with a number of people who are moving to British Columbia for one reason or another and who want housing. Very true. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for our weekly check-in of everything that's been going on in the United States. And obviously, there is one overwhelming story of what is happening down there. We're learning a lot about the legal system, too, given what is happening with former President Donald Trump right now. So joining us is Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global National. Good morning, Jackson. Good morning and happy Friday. Yes, happy Friday. No kidding. Now, I'm sure you've had quite a week. Let's talk about this Donald Trump case. Is this trial going to be televised? It will not be televised, unfortunately. Uh, despite the huge public implications and interest, federal court proceedings are left uh, pretty much to the imagination. Uh, sketches only, not even electronic devices allowed in the courtroom. So we'll be left relying on notes and sketches. Okay, so what do we know about what, where we're at right now? What, what happened this week with Donald Trump? Yeah, so the indictment came down on Tuesday, and it essentially charges him with four new counts. Uh, the counts are pretty serious. They are obstruction of official proceedings, conspiracy against the United States, and obstruction of rights, specifically voting rights and the rights for votes to be counted accurately. And the sort of takeaway from all of this is that these accusations are bound together by the central allegation that Trump knew he had lost the 2020 election, but pushed ahead with the lie anyway and used that lie to pressure state-level officials, his own Justice Department, even his own vice president, to try and overturn the results. 
Okay, so how does this play into the fact that he's also running for president? <laughs> Let's just say he's got a complicated calendar for the year ahead. He is now indicted in three separate cases, potentially a fourth here. All of these trials and court dates still have to really be flushed out here at this point. But it's very conceivable that at least both federal indictments, the one here in Washington and the one in Miami, will be uh, unfolding in the courts while he's trying to campaign. And of course, this is sort of going to be the tug of war in all of this, because uh, special counsel Jack Smith has said he wants there to be a speedy trial, especially in the 2020 election interference case. Uh, they're going to set a date in just a couple of weeks. The trial could start within 90 days. Trump's team, though, if they had their way, would not have this dealt with until after the 2024 election, because, of course, their theory is that Trump has a very good chance of winning, which he does, and a Trump-controlled Justice Department could perhaps disappear these charges. Okay, so will these trials, will some of them happen before the election? I know that his lawyers are trying to get them pushed off till after, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's conceivable that at least the election interference trial gets underway before the election. Um, the Miami documents case, I think, is a little more complicated, although right now that's tentatively scheduled for um, some dates in uh, May of next year. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Okay. Now, of course, we also have to talk about Florida. It seems like there's so many stories out of Florida these days, too. Uh, so I keep hearing about Florida and the curriculum and the different laws that they have there. And so why, why are they being advised not to offer AP psychology? Yeah, I mean, this is just sort of the latest development, and it's kind of a response to uh, Florida's uh, laws that have been brought in about teaching uh, gender uh, identity and sexuality in school. And so now they're saying that the advanced placement psychology course uh, cannot be taught in Florida schools because it does include discussion about gender identity and sexuality and could violate the state's law. So it's just one more example of how uh, what was billed by Governor Ron DeSantis as a move to protect freedom has, in fact, done the exact opposite. And it's preventing the discussion of the facts of life in the classroom. So the College Board is telling school districts that maybe you just shouldn't offer advanced placement psychology classes? Exactly. I think what we see more often than not is that the wording of laws like this, uh, the wording of some of the abortion restrictions in other states, they're all so vague that you see professionals, whether they're teachers or doctors or others, really err on the side of caution because nobody wants to end up in jail simply right. for doing their job. So they say, look, it's easier to just not teach that subject than run afoul of the law. Oh, my goodness. OK, and let me also ask you, Jackson, today about the six Mississippi officers. This case sounds horrific. They've pled guilty to torturing two black men. Yeah, I, you know, this is uh, remarkable. Um, the, the, the group of six white officers apparently called themselves the Goon Squad because they had sort of a, a well-established reputation for using excessive force and not reporting it. And this all dates back to an incident in uh, January in Braxton, Mississippi. Uh, and these two black men filed a federal lawsuit saying that they were um, tortured by these six officers uh, for more than two hours with one of the men actually shot in the mouth. Uh, it's absolutely horrific, and so the, the charges were filed here. I think what you're seeing more and more is a willingness, especially from state and federal prosecutors, to crack down on policing. Uh, when you look at the charges that were filed in this case, uh, they include conspiracy against rights, deprivation of rights, obstruction of justice. These are the types of things that federal officials are really interested in prosecuting now to crack down on alleged abuses of power by police departments. Okay, just one more reason why your job is so fascinating, covering all of these different stories in one week. Uh, Jackson, thank you so much for your time. 
My pleasure. Have a great weekend. You too. That is Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global National, talking about all the story. Well, just a few of them that happened in the United States this past week. Obviously, the Donald Trump story is the one that overwhelms anything and everything it feels like in the media down there. This is Mornings with Simi. 31 years ago. Oh, seems like so long. I had my very first job in the whole journalism, business, and media industry. I worked as a reporter for the Surrey Leader newspaper. And let me tell you, it was amazing. It was amazing to be a part of a vibrant, thriving community newspaper at that time. It was important work. It was eye-opening work. And I saw and experienced kind of firsthand that connection between a community and a newspaper that provides so much really local information, right? It was a lifeline. And I was thinking about that yesterday when I heard the news that three local community papers are no longer going to have print editions. They are going digital only. And these are local papers that were pretty big back in the day, including the Tri-City News, the New West Record, the Burnaby Now. I mean, I know times change, but this is a story that we've seen so often in the last 15 years or so, right? I think about how we used to wait for the latest edition of the paper to be printed. Remember when like papers like The Sun, one of them had a morning edition, one of them had an evening edition, so you could buy both papers to find out what had happened in the meantime? Boy, of course, none of that happens anymore. We can go online, right? But how are newspapers supposed to adapt? But more importantly, what do we lose when we don't have, you know, ready access or we don't I guess it's us too. We don't pay as much attention to that very local community news anymore. Well, we had a chance to talk about this with April Lindgren, who is the principal investigator for the Local News Research Project at Toronto Metropolitan University's School of Journalism. Well, April, let me start by asking you, do you do you still read a physical copy of a newspaper? I don't. And I haven't for, oh gosh, quite a long time. I, I, I mean, I used to get all sorts of, pa- you know, a couple papers delivered directly to my house. But then I thought, you know, I needed to see how every, how the majority of people are consuming news these days or how many people are consuming news, news these days. So I switched to online. And actually, I really, I've, I've become a big fan because I don't have to cancel physical papers when I'm away. And anyway, I, I just liked it better. Right. And I, but I think that is the case, right? A lot of these publications are moving to online only or ceasing to exist. How, like, what has happened, do you think, to newspapers? When you look back, what was the turning point, do you think? Was it the advent of the internet? For sure. I mean, it happened gradually, but it started, you could say it started with, you know, the arrival of things like Craigslist and, and, and the um, online opportunities to that, that basically killed um, uh the advertisements that people would place in the paper whenever they wanted to, you know, sell the desk that the kid isn't using anymore. The classifieds disappeared. Um, and then, and then, you know, gradually as, as the platforms became more sophisticated in helping advertisers um, target uh, specific groups and specific uh, potential customers, um, that too c- contributed to the problem. And then of course you have the fragmenting of, of, of audiences online um, so it's harder and harder to reach um, a, a, a mass audience at once. So all of these things, um, uh, you know, plus the cost of, you know, driving driving around or hiring somebody to walk down the street and throw the newspaper on people's porch is, is significant. 
And what do you think a community loses? Like for a lot of these community newspapers, it's been very challenging. Even if they do move online, it's still very challenging to stay afloat, find that readership there. But what do we lose when a community doesn't have a local newspaper? Well, and here I make the point that there's, uh, it doesn't have to be a newspaper, but the community needs local news. Uh, And there's a a variety of reasons for that. Uh, First is that um, it helps you hold power accountable. So, you know, and and, and it helps you participate in decisions. So if the bulldozers show up at the end of your street to put in a four-lane highway, it's kind of late to to try and have your say about that, that being a bad idea. Um, you know, when people had better access or, or paid more attention to local news, you would know that that uh, four-lane highway was being proposed at the committee level at council, city council, and you could go there and say, hey, this is like a really rotten idea, um, and make yourself heard and, and have some chance of influencing the decision. So the first has to do with being able to participate in, in local decision-making. But we also know that local news um, helps build community. So it introduces, you might never meet, you know, the people on the other side of town, but you could read about, uh, you know, their kids' spectacular um, uh, hockey career in the offing. Um, Or you could um, find out about uh, a a business person who's been hugely successful. Um, So you would get to know people and be aware of events in the city, in your city or town or municipality, and then be able to talk to other people about it. So neither of us know, you know, what's happening on the, know anybody on the other side of town, but we know what's happening and we can talk about it over the back fence. And, and, and that's a, that's a community building um, effort as well. And then more recently, of course, um, it, it puts off, it, it, it's a counter local news because it's timely verified and produced independently with, you know, not anybody influencing it. Is, is a counter to misinformation and rumor that is so much of what's happening in communities that circulating in places where there is no reliable source of, of information to say what's really, what really was decided at council the other day or what's really happening in the, in the local business community. You make a good point so that if you're reading the news online, maybe it's you're reading all about these big stories, but we're not reading the little stories anymore. And the little stories are where there's so much information about your neighborhood. Like we all could probably stand to pay a little more attention to what's happening at our local city council. Couldn't we? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm actually not that wedded to the idea of a print edition. Um, I think what's happening right now is there's a, a, I mean, basically a newspaper, what is a newspaper anymore? If, if, If a newspaper used to publish five times a week, say a daily Right. Or, or three times a week as a community paper, a physical copy, and then it reduces it to four times a week or two times a week, and then it switches online. We're still calling them newspapers, right? Are they still newspapers? So, so you know, we've got that kind of uh, gray area emerging. Um, and the other thing that's, I think, challenging for newspapers in general that switch um, is that, uh, you know, you don't uh, – I mean, it's not just that they don't have a, phys- a, a, a print edition – but often what happens is so many papers have closed, um, you know, like, like since 2008, we've been tracking it. And there's been, you know, more than 400 and about 475 local news organizations have closed. And of those, um, 75% are, are community papers, those that publish fewer than five times a week. So, um, you know, as, as that's happening, you know, they, they're, they're physical press, they're not front and center about what local news is. Um, lots of times they close and then they become regional papers that are serving smaller communities. 
Um, so you you get less news in the in the physical copies that do show up, and you get less news online. Um, and now what's happening is papers are also since the pandemic um, just closing and not opening their actual physical newsrooms. So you don't walk down Main Street anymore in in quite a few places and see that um, you know banner on the on the building outside that this is you know the, the name of the local newspaper. So the, all of that speaks to sort of the presence and the front of being, things being front of mind in the community about where they go for news. And, um, and, and people are sort of, I think, kind of shrugging and not really realizing what they're losing until it's gone. And even then you might not realize it. Right, until you need it, right? That's always the case. April, thank you so much for your time. Anytime. That's April Lindgren, Principal Investigator for the Local News Research Project at Toronto Metropolitan University School of Journalism, talking about losing our community newspapers. Three more of them are going online only, no longer publishing a physical copy. The New West Record, Burnaby Now, and the Tri-City News. This is Mornings with Simi. We all have questions about the gang conflict in this province, right? Questions about how we got here, how it continues, how do they recruit people, how does it proliferate? Well, it's one of the reasons why Global News is embarking on a special investigation into the rising gang conflict in BC. In fact, starting Monday, all next week on the News Hour, and you'll find it online at globalnews.ca, you will read this special investigation research done by online journalist for Global BC, Darian Matassa-Fung. And we had a chance to ask him, what is this series all about? Darian, thanks for joining us to talk about this new series that you have been working on. So tell me, what is it that you look at? Yeah, so it, I've looked at a few things. Um, uh, at first, it started when, you know, I've been writing online articles for Global BC uh, and Global Okanagan for a few years now, and we're constantly referencing, you know, the ongoing gang conflict, but never really explaining what that means or what that totally entails. So, um, you know, I had the idea of, of exploring this further. Uh, so my first steps was contacting uh, CFSEU, which is the leading anti-gang task force uh, in the province, and just kind of bouncing the idea of exactly that, kind of diving into what the gang conflict looks like in 2023. They were super on board, um, and, you know, they gave me some great uh, information, and we did a, a few interviews with them. Uh, and one thing kind of led to another, just kind of like how you tug on a thread, uh, and it just led to one interview led to another, and I end up speaking with, uh, you know, a former, a recently former, around five months ago, a uh, high school Surrey drug dealer. I also talked to um, an SFU, a former SFU uh, criminology forensic uh, professor. Uh, she, her name is Hillary Morden. She interviewed over 100 active gang members between uh, 2017 and partway through 2018. So she was a great resource as well. Uh, and then through CFSEU, I also was able to contact um, VPD Detective Cal Dosange, uh, as well as uh, Abbotsford's um, anti-gang program, uh, their Pathways program. So mm. lots of interviews. It was months of research. Uh, we got a five-part uh, five online series and a four-part uh, four TV series coming out on Global BC's News Hour. That's going to be, you know, where I'm basically going to showcase all the information that uh, I found out. Okay, so Darian, tell me then, with all that information that you gathered, were there things that like surprised you? Like, what really stood out for you? What did you learn? 
Yeah, so absolutely. Um, I think just talking to the the recently former Surrey High School drug dealer was a dealer was extremely eye opening. Um, he, you know, alleges, uh, and and it, it is corroborated through um, my police interviews that you know drug dealing is happening in in almost every major high school in the Lower Mainland, and and that's not a surprise. But the surprise is the affiliations or the ties. That, it, that they have to mid-level gangs. So, you know, everyone knows drugs comes from somewhere, and when the money uh, is made from selling the drugs, it, it flows upwards somewhere. And you don't really have a, a good understanding of, of how close these mid-level gangs are to these high school students uh, and, and how they are targeting these, these kids to participate and to sell these drugs, and also how they are very calculated in finding, you know, the kids that are most susceptible to, to joining gangs, as well as their customers uh, in school and and even in primary school, which is which is quite shocking. So the person that you talked to then, what like they were dealing uh, drugs in the school? How did they even get into this? Like, what got them into that line of work? That's a great question. So he he alleges that you know he was um, came from a bit of a rough upbringing. Uh, didn't have the best uh, parental guidance in in his um, in his in his preteen years, uh, and he was a, a sports guy. He really leaned into basketball, and so he didn't have the best home life. So he was always at the basketball court um, in his local neighborhood, and these older guys just kept showing up there, and ultimately like offering him you know, free vapes and free e-cigarettes. And he says this is a very common way of how the older guys kind of begin their relations with younger kids. And so after a few weeks, he said, you know, this guy, these guys kept giving me uh, free vapes and then he got addicted to vapes. And so the next time they came around, they said, hey, um, look, we can't give you any more free vapes. You got to pay for the next one. And then, of course, as a kid, you know, you didn't have any money. So... Mm -hmm. They started giving him tasks to carry out and, and ultimately kind of um, brought him into their group and started, you know, giving him basically pot to sell it for, or cannabis, sorry, to sell it first, which led to, you know, as he did, I guess, a good job in their eyes, it led to more um, responsibilities. It's so insidious, isn't it? Like that is terrifying to hear for a parent that it was as simple as that. It, it, it really is. And, um, you know, it is no secret that cigarettes or nicotine has been in high schools for decades, but it is more so being used now as a, a tool um, to access these kids and ultimately, like I said, get them addicted to something where they don't have money to pay for. And next thing they know, they want more. And so they end up doing things for these older, um, older guys uh, that that have contacted them. Wow, that is so fascinating. Well, I look forward to watching the series, reading the series. Darian, thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you for having me. That's Darian Matassafung, online journalist for Global BC. So this series will start on Monday and runs all next week. You can catch it on the News Hour, and as well, you can read it at globalnews.ca, cknw.com. But listen, that story about how that one that one 
former Surrey high school drug dealer was kind of ensnared into the industry is so frightening for parents out there, for teens out there, that it was as simple as that, as befriending a kid at the playground. And that is how they spend time doing it, right? They spend time, they show the attention. And it is, as I said, insidious. So make sure you watch for that series next week. I think we'll probably all learn a little something too. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, we are talking Vancouver Whitecaps right now. Yes, we also have something to give away. We've got this four-pack of tickets to the Whitecaps game happening tonight as part of the League's Cup round of 32. We've got a bunch of contestants on the line. Just want you to hold there for a second because first we're going to be checking in with Vancouver Whitecaps head coach Vandy Sartini. Morning, coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. And hey, congratulations. This is a big game tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big game. It's um, We are really excited for that. We're playing a very important team in Mexico. We were able to win in LA Sunday, so qualifying for this round. Hopefully we're going to do a great game and uh, and go to the next round too. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's enjoy let's enjoy the game tonight first. And there's lots of things going on, right? It's like Friday night football at BC Place. <laughs> you've got you've got the warm-up on Terry Fox Plaza that starts at 4. You've got $5 beer, you've got food specials, and then you've got the game. I mean, this is a very big deal. What have the crowds been like? Yeah, you know, it's uh tonight it's going to be fun. Like if uh, if we we expect more or less the same uh, I would say kind of crowd that we when we played Leon, the other Mexican team that we played like uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, when we have this, uh, I would say, colorful, uh, very loud uh, uh, Mexican crowd that they cheer for their team, our crowds become even more, uh, I would say, loud and they raise to the occasion. So nice. the stadium uh, became really alive. And uh, so it's going to be fun. The only thing that uh, I'm going to regret now that since I, I have to work and coach the team, I cannot have those uh, beers in the warm-up. <laughs> yeah, you cannot. You have to wait until after you win the game for that one. Yeah. <laughs> now, I know that you also signed a couple of star players, right? Tell me about that. Yeah, uh, so the, um, we have the deadline day for the transfer window uh, two days ago, and the club did, a, I would say, a really good job. We signed two Canadian internationals, Richie Laria and Sam Adekube, that they both play in for the national team, they both coming from uh, uh, international experience, Richie in, uh, in England and Sam in Turkey. So they won't be ready to, to go, of course, uh, tonight, but uh, they will soon be able to help us in the quest for hopefully the League Cup if we win tonight for the next round, but for sure for getting to the playoffs. Right, because it's going to be the next couple of weeks. Really, the month of August is going to be huge for the Whitecaps, isn't it? Yes, yes. We huge and also, I would say, uh, not that easy because uh, we're going to have a game, a very important home, August 20 against San Jose. So fans, please come in mass and, and help us because it's going to be a very decisive game. And then after that, we're going to have seven games on a, uh, on a row in on the road. So we're okay. going to... It's going. It's going to be good for my pizza blog, but it's, uh, it's going to be it's going to be hard uh, in order to get results. So we need uh, we need all the help that we need. Well, I do. Lo- I do love the idea of the pizza blog. Now, Coach, I know you're going to help us give some tickets away because we have a four pack to give away for the game tonight. Okay, so we have John on the line this morning. Good morning, John. Good morning, Simi. Are you all set to go to this game and cheer hard for the Whitecaps tonight? 
Absolutely. So are you ready for your trivia question? It be. Okay, yep. well, guess what? It's not going to be me giving you your trivia question. It's going to be Coach Vanny Sartini giving you the trivia question. Vanny, what is the trivia question? Yes, hi, John. The trivia question is very, very difficult. Please, who's gonna, who was the assistant coach for the Whitecaps in 2019? So, John, you got that? Who was the assistant coach for the Whitecaps in 2019? Vanny Sartini. Ah, yeah. <laughs> little bit of a trick question. Hey, congratulations, John. You and three friends, family, whatever. You're going to the game tonight. Will, San- will Vanny be buying us beers? Uh, only yeah. if they win. Oh, yeah. If we win, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Go find him after the game, John, and he'll get that for you. <laughs> hold, on the- hold on there on the line, John, so we can uh, get your information. Listen, Coach, thank you for doing that for us, and good luck tonight, okay? And, uh, see me. See me. Thank you, because uh, my one of my dreams was to be the uh, answer on a Jeopardy question. I, I didn't get Jeopardy yet, but at least your show so it's, it's close. Okay. It's really, really, I'm very close to Jeopardy. Coach, good, good luck tonight. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> that is Vanny Zardini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. John is our winner, and Vanny helped us give those tickets away. It was a four-pack of tickets to the game that's happening tonight as part of the League's Cup round of 32. Cheer on those Vancouver Whitecaps. We want to see them do really well. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is a very busy weekend, both outside Metro Vancouver, of course, all the travel, long weekend, but inside, particularly in the city of Vancouver, where we are celebrating the Pride Parade and everything that goes with it. Now, the parade itself is on Sunday, but, you know, we wanted to talk about the history of this and particularly the significance this year. So joining us now is Michelle Fortin, who's co-chair of the Vancouver Pride Society. Michelle, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Simi, and happy Pride. Happy Pride to you, too. So first off, let's talk about Sunday. How big of a crowd are you expecting? You know, uh, we have a brand new route, uh, and we're not competing with the fireworks. And so our hope is that, that, that there will be, you know, three to 500,000 people um, down at the parade and festival site this, uh, this Sunday. Excellent. Okay, so it is, I think, also this year, there's more significance, don't you think, Michelle? Um, absolutely. You know, there has been uh, a rise in you know, uh, homophobic and transphobic rhetoric, as well as protests and, um, you know, threats of violence, where in a small town like Nelson, for instance, a drag story time had to be shut down uh, in a bookstore because uh, people were concerned for the safety of the artists um, and the, the families and children. So it is really important in our theme this year is reconnect. And while coming out of COVID, people think about connecting with our community, but we're also connecting to our roots. Right. So you want people to remember that this is, this is about also reconnecting with the history of pride. Absolutely. Absolutely. That pride came out of protest. And, and, you know, we think about Stonewall because it is the most kind of vibrant and um, recognized piece of history. But, you know, in this city, in the sixties, before the Stonewall riot, there were people doing drag um, at the risk of being um, apprehended and thrown in jail by police here, they literally would be doing drag and police would come in the front door and the drag performers would run out the back. Wow. And when was Vancouver's first official Pride Parade? Uh, that's a great question. There was, there was a march, right? So people have been gathering and marching since just after Stonewall. In fact, we're one of the um, cities that has an original piece of the big pride flag that was created 
um, uh, uh, down by folks in San Francisco in the, in the early 70s. So a long time, like we're talking 40 plus years. A very, very long time. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, you know, I was doing uh, a little bit of reminiscing yesterday and uh, looking at our history that the city of Vancouver has gay and lesbian archives with photos and books and uh, memories of people that have been around uh, even longer than I have uh, in this community. So it's a, it's a great piece of history for people to access at the fingertips. It's all online. And I know there are some other changes happening this year as well, Michelle, right? Because it's a new route. It is a brand new route. So we start at Demon and Davy at the, at the foot of uh, Davy, a beautiful English bay. And we actually walk past uh, Sunset Beach, along Beach Avenue, up to Pacific, um, over the, the Lake Burrard, underneath Granville, around uh, through Yaletown, and finish at the Concord Pacific Grounds. People will remember the, them um, related to Cirque du Soleil, for instance. But very excited because there are three SkyTrain routes. We have um, bigger, broader sidewalks for viewing, and there's a little more shade for folks because, as you know, Pride Weekend is always gorgeous in Vancouver. It's always really hot. I've walked the parade many times, <laughs> and I know that I'm done after I do that. It is exhausting. Right? It's true. And so this route is, a, you know, it's interesting. It's a little bit longer but our accessibility consultants let us know that, well, it's longer, it's flatter and straighter, so people aren't having to make turns. And what that means is it should actually be faster so our marchers aren't baking in the sun as they're waiting to round yet another corner. All right, that is wonderful. So it's going to be a great time. And I understand that you're also gearing up, already thinking about next year, because next year is going to be even bigger. Next year is uh, we're going to host Canada and the world. Uh, Canada Pride 2024 in Vancouver, same weekend, um, but hopefully bigger and brighter um, with a human rights conference to start it off. So really grounding us in that history, but also being able to move us forward around things like legislation, supporting trans families, looking at how we support uh, refugee and newcomers that are queer coming from places where they're persecuted, keeping in mind that 68 countries still outlaw the way that I want to love. So, Michelle, it feels like for so many years that Pride just became this big festival. It was a good time. You know, mm-hmm. it was had by all. And it was very corporate as well, right? You saw lots of big companies involved. Is, is that also why you think it feels like we need to remind people that there's still a very good reason to hold this event? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Taking up space is important. And I think more than ever, it's the allies that we are asking to show up. Because we know that we can't move forward without them. So that's why it's so important. Are there other events happening this weekend, too, that people need to know about? Well, you know, uh, last night was comedy. Uh, Tonight, uh, Queer as Funk is playing, as well as our Davy Lounge is open every night. And tomorrow, for the first time, we actually have a two-day festival. So people can go down and check out Pride Park uh, at the festival grounds, accessible through SkyTrain or Main, Main Street SkyTrain. Um, and uh, hear performers, drag performers, and then Sunday, of course, the festival is from noon all the way to 7.30. Wow, what a weekend you have in store. Michelle, thank you so much for that. My pleasure, Simi, and uh, 
yeah, look forward to seeing everybody down there on Sunday. It's going to be a great event. That is Michelle Fortin, who's a co-chair of the Vancouver Pride Society, talking about this upcoming very busy weekend they have in store. Yes, the parade itself is on Sunday, but as Michelle mentioned, they've got a bunch of different festival events that are happening before that and leading up to it. And don't forget, there are also road closures associated with the Pride Parade. Those closures could start as early as 5 a.m. and they will conclude and be opened back up by about 4 o'clock or so in the afternoon. So just know that there's a new route. So it might not be what you know, you've seen in years past in terms of road closures. And of course, you can find all the information online as well. But uh, yeah, very big celebration going on. And we know that with the long weekend, it's just going to be busy in general everywhere with so many events going on.